So you've made a movie, right? You finished it. Maybe you finished a short. Maybe you finished a feature film. And the next question always is, what, what's your plan? What's your distribution plan? Are you uh, going to self-distribute it? Did you finance it yourself? Did you get money from somebody else, right? You got to make that money back. So how are you going to get an audience to give a shit about it? There are so many different ways to get a film out there, to get eyes on it. There's so many different ways to make money on these sort of things. And although it seems this seems these days that it, you're just essentially trying to get a streamer to buy stuff, right? Theatrical is so difficult these days, but it still does happen. It still does happen. There are uh, distributors and, and uh, studios out there still releasing stuff, especially if it fits within a, a specific genre, right? You're doing horror stuff. You might you might still get theatrical, but what's the steps? How do you get there? Uh, today's episode, we're going to talk a little bit about that. We're going to talk a little bit about film festivals, and it's we're going to talk with a strange guy about this stuff. This today's today's conversation ended up going in a completely different direction than I thought it would, and I'm happy it did because our guest today has had a lot of experience with film festivals. He's had a lot of experience as a producer and getting movies made and getting them put out there. And uh, he's actually, when we recorded this episode, which was a few months ago or a month ago, um, he was getting ready to go to Sundance. He was going to Sundance and putting on a party at Sundance for cinematographers and filmmakers. And this was uh, the way that the company that he now works for, which is uh, Zeiss, right? Do you guys know who Zeiss is? Zeiss makes some of the coolest lenses out there in the marketplace. I, I first got to know Zeiss from using the old school Zeiss super speed lenses when I was shooting music videos. And then photography, we were using Zeiss lenses for photo lenses. They're beautiful, beautiful lenses. Uh, amazingly crafted uh, glass um, super sharp images. There was a period in time where I couldn't figure out how certain photographers were getting looks, and it turns out they were using Zeiss stuff. Um, so I met today's guest at, where did we meet? I think we met him at a party for Adobe, right? I think it was at an Adobe party. And uh, he was an interesting cat. He was talking with Gina, and him and I got along really well. And he started to talk about working for Zeiss, but more importantly, his his time as a producer. And I said, you got to come on the fucking show, man, because you've got such a great insight into both angles of it, right? Um, how films are shot, supporting artists to get the gear and the equipment they need to make really powerful things happen. And Zeiss is doing a lot with filmmakers. They're really pushing hard to get in with the next generation of filmmakers. And, and honestly, let me be real with everybody listening to the show. That's what you want from a company. These companies that are desperately trying to beat out the old dinosaurs, the larger companies that have had sort of their grips on the cinema world. Uh, you want to be around when these younger companies are doing things because they like to support filmmakers. Maybe you'll get a, a set of lenses for free. Maybe you'll get better access to things. Um, and I know that today's guest is in charge of all of that. Um, he is essentially the director of cinema sales uh, in the Americas, 
Uh, and uh, I'm going to be joined by Snehal Patel, who I really dig. Since we've done this show, we've actually gone out and had beers, and uh, we've uh, had a bunch of fucking great laughs since we've recorded the show. Um, but he is the guy that is managing the sales for the entire line of Zeiss cinema lenses in North and South America. Um, and then he's really the guy who's making decisions on how they sell and how they educate and how they um, really sort of get in with a whole new group of filmmakers. Uh, and wh why he's so good at this and why he's so successful at this is that he has spent time making movies and producing movies on his own. And we go deep into that. You'll see this conversation. It is not an ad for Zeiss. Zeiss is not a sponsor of the show. Not yet, by the way. You probably should be. Um, but uh, no, we, we start talking pretty quickly uh, about Sundance and about film festivals and about programming and about how films get programmed into film festivals. Um, he talks a bit about that. Uh, it's, there's a lot to be learned here. And we're going to go deep into what you do, what happens after you make a movie, and and the different marketplaces that are available to you. So uh, there's a lot here. I'm excited. Uh, like I said, surprising episode. You never know. I never know. And this is what's so exciting about hosting this show, is that I meet people, most of the time it's over beers, right? Maybe it's over Instagram, but it's over beers, and I'm just hanging out with them. We start to talk. And I could just tell, I could tell immediately, like these people have something to talk about. And I'm, I'm, I'm normally just going, dude, dude, come on the show. Come on the show. So I met Victor from Fujifilm, same kind of thing. Um, so get ready, man. This is a great filmmaker episode. Um, thank you everybody who, uh, have been following me on Instagram at Mike Petchy and following the podcast at in love with the process pod on Instagram. I have been running contests up there. We've been giving away vinyls. We've been giving away cameras. Uh, it is the place to be if you want to give feedback on the show, if you want to ask me to watch 12KM. I mean, it's my other fucking job. I'm always on Instagram responding to messages. So if you need to get in touch with me, if you want to know what's up, if you want to see these, these amazing new pieces that we're doing, it's all there. Instagram's the place to go. Um, and... Uh, yeah, man. I, let's not let's not make a long intro for this, man. It's there's a lot to be uh, talked and discussed on the show. It is a wild adventure ride. Uh, me and Snehal get deep into it. So strap yourselves in to a pretty fun filmmaker episode on the brand new episode. How many times can I say episode? Episode, episode, episode of In Love with the Process. Episode, episode, episode. <laughs>
Snehal. Thanks for being on the show, man. How are you? I'm doing well, Mike. I'm doing ex- really well. I'm excited to chat, man. It's we've been talking about this for a little bit, and it was uh, we hung out the other day at the uh, Zeiss event that you guys put on, and I felt like we started the podcast just talking to each other. I'm like, all right, all right I got to stop talking to you because we got to get on the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to stop getting information from you. <laughs> get it only on the podcast. I yeah, want to no, be surprised. Was it was fun to have everyone here. It was a little pre-film uh, festival party, we call it, you know, before we go to Sundance Film Festival. Uh, yeah. which is starting this weekend. So, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. That. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. So is it, do you guys go, have you been to Sundance multiple times? Is this your first time? Yes. No, no, we've been multiple times and actually Zeiss, uh, you know, you came and saw the experience at our office, how we have an office in, in Hollywood, uh, that, you know, represents, uh, what Zeiss cinema does. Right. And, and not, not, uh, not necessarily all the divisions, but just the, just the cinema division. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, what we're doing at, Sundance is we try to bring some of that with us. So we have a lounge there, oh, nice, uh, which nice. happens on the Tuesday after the first weekend. Mm-hmm. And during the day, you can come and have coffee and then beer in the afternoon and snacks and food. And we have interviews going on, Zeiss conversations with uh, various cinematographers uh, at three different times during the day. Uh, and then at night, we have a party, uh, which is one, actually one of the most popular parties at Sundance. Everyone tries to get in because there's no other like party like that going on on that Tuesday. Um, a lot of the brands and stuff, their activations are over the weekend. Ah, yeah. So I, I was one year I went to Sundance. It was because I had a short film that got into Troma Dance, <laughs> which was okay. Lloyd Kaufman's festival. And he was putting that on right at Sundance. And he uh, was like, uh, you know, enticing all of his festivities, if you would call us that, all of his filmmakers to go and sort of raid these different parties that Sundance was putting on. That was kind of his vibe. And so, oh, I see. yeah, it was wild, man. I, I, it, it's such a weird, wild experience because it's like this old Western street that feels like a movie set. And then, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And main street. Yeah. It feel it does feel like uh, something from like, you know, ski lodge town, obviously, or a ski town. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A little old worldy. And then, there's only one real theater, the Egyptian, uh, which is large enough to uh, host, uh, you know, screenings yeah. uh, on that street. And then everything else you have to kind of either take a bus or a Uber to because it's around town in Park City, Utah. Yes. But it doesn't take very long to get between places. There's no traffic or anything. Once you, you know, get out of Main Street, it's, it's pretty easy to move around. So it's an experience. I mean, you start learning how to get to screenings on time if you have a ticket or if you don't have a ticket how to use the waitlist system, the <laughs> app to try to get into screenings. This year it costs 25 bucks to go to one screening. Wow. Okay. Um, so you, you pick wisely, you know, based on the descriptions and recommendations. Uh, I stay for a week. So, you know, in the first half I'm doing interviews at the Zeiss house because we have a house that we, we um, all stay at. That's cool. We do interviews there with cinematographers and mm-hmm. we're doing like, I think like 10 or 15 interviews at the house over Sunday and Monday. And then we'll have our lounge and party on Tuesday. And then Wednesday, Thursday is spent just really just watching films. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then I leave on Friday. Yeah. So um, when you go, when you go to watch films, are you trying to get in? <clears throat> See, this is a question that I get all the time. And I try to explain to a lot of young filmmakers how it actually happens at festivals. Are, are you trying to get into, you're trying to get into some features when you're there, right? Or are you going to see the shorts program? No, like no, what are you shorts block? Oh. No, I love the shorts block. Are you kidding me? Okay. Every festival I go to, I go to the shorts block. Okay. Good. <laughs> Every single one. So I was one of the people that helped 
uh, f- uh, put together the LA Comedy Shorts Film Festival years ago. Oh. We subsequently sold the festival to Holly Shorts, but the LA Comedy Shorts Film Festival took place in one theater, the Downtown Independent, one screen, mm-hmm. and three days of programming, and a lot of fun. So we had it's all comedy. So there's no serious shorts. It's all comedic shorts, mm-hmm. uh, and we usually got like a thousand or fifteen hundred entries. And we programmed around, I think it was like 40 or 50 uh, yeah. around there. And then we had some sponsors come in like Funny or Die and others. And they they brought a block of shorts on their own. Sure. Uh, so you'd have a Funny or Die block. We used to have, you know, things like the Atomic something. I forgot the names of these companies. They don't even exist anymore. <laughs> but there's a lot of like online, you know, content providers or, or companies that were doing comedy um, at one time. And so... We'd bring them in and speakers and stuff. So I am I have such a love for short films because people that make really good short films, yep. you can tell that they're going to be able to handle a feature or yeah. a television show. Yeah. You can tell really, especially if you make a, and a lot of young filmmakers don't understand this, if you make a really tight five-minute story that makes sense, that's logical, has a beginning, middle, end, and has an emotion that you extracted out of me in five minutes, you won. Yeah. <laughs> you won. Yeah. hundred percent. hundred percent, dude. Yeah. Yeah, man. I, I, I've made shorts for years and I fully endorse like getting in quick, telling something like for, for me, it sort of transitioned into making proof of concepts. So shorts mm-hmm. become like a really interesting tool, very important tool. If you're out there pitching feature films, and especially if you're considered a first time director, uh, shorts can really help tell folks the tone that you are going to try to convey when they read the script. Because, you know, Correct. when anybody reads a script, they're sort of injecting their own, you know, experiences and and what they assume. I feel like the first time I look at a script and I'm reading it, I'm, I'm like, what is this movie like? What does this look like? And so then you instantly sort of associate it with a film that you've seen before. And so a lot of that tone from a movie will seep into your idea, into your script when someone's reading it. Um, and so if you're doing a short film, you can kind of control that. You can send them out like a proof of concept. They'll watch it and they'll go, Oh, that's cool. It's a cool tone vibe. And then they'll read the script with that tone and vibe in their mind. You know? Yeah, absolutely. And there's nothing saying that you have to have two stories the same. You can make the short about anything, Yeah. but if you got a certain look, a certain feel to it, uh, the way that the characters are, are handling the story, the way it's directed, and then you can hand them a feature. It can be, you know, a completely different topic. But if you say, "Hey, it's in the tone of this," then they're going to get it. Yeah. Um, a lot of times, uh, you'll find that the people with the the money or the green lighting, the projects, are the ones that are, you know, getting you funding for feature. They're not the creative, have an imagination type. <laughs> yeah. So the more you can help them out and you know it's fair like hey show them a product that's awesome yeah so they say oh cool so you can make more of this awesome product right and you could do it bigger it's the same as if you were manufacturing like shoes you know like yeah make a nice shoe and if people love it then they're they're going to be like all right well can you make 10 more of 10 different types yeah i can do that you know it, it, it's it's a logical step um but if you just said hey i'm a great shoemaker uh, look at my drawings. People are going to go, oh, I don't know about this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He, hasn't, he hasn't made a shoe yet, so I'm not sure. Yeah. He really execute, right? Yeah, it's very true, dude. It's very true. And then, you know, selfishly as a filmmaker, it's also 
a great opportunity for you to work out a bunch of ideas that you may have in theory, which is nice. Correct. So yeah. And yeah. practice. Yeah. 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 I love it. I just shot yeah, so- I just shot a new one two weeks ago. And I th- I think oh, they're wonderful. yeah, they're incredibly useful. Um, and if you're, I think the move is just to be calculating about them. Like if you're, if you're doing a short, unless you're just hanging out with your friends and you keep your costs very low and you guys are just learning your techniques. But once you get to a point professionally, and especially if you're going to go into a film festival with a short film, the questions that I would always get was like, okay, so what are you trying to do? What's next? What do you have coming up? Do you have some features written? Like what's going on? Mm -hmm. You have to have that actionable follow-up, you know? You do. You absolutely have to go and prepare. You can't waste an opportunity like that. Um, but you also, the, the getting into festivals is the hard part for a lot of filmmakers. Yeah. Because I think that, you know, if you really look at the numbers, if I'm telling you that for LA comedy shorts alone, which is a very narrow <laughs> band of, of, uh, of, um, of films, uh, if we were getting a thousand to 2000 entries for a tiny little festival, can you imagine like, how many entries like a Sundance or a South by Southwest gets? It's crazy. And can you imagine how much bad stuff is out there? Because I saw a lot of bad stuff <laughs> when we were doing programming for the fest I was involved with. And I did programming for other festivals. Yeah. There's a lot of bad material out there that people spend a lot of money on. Yeah, there is. There is. A lot I... of time, a lot of effort. And you're like, what was the point? Why did you make this? Yeah. So it, you got to practice, right? You're not going to be good the first time around necessarily. Yeah, it's very true. You know, I sat on a panel. I was on a judge panel for a festival back in the East. And so we also mm-hmm. went through a bunch of screeners and stuff. And it's it's fascinating. I What I try to do when I make stuff and what I try to tell folks that ask is make the best thing that you possibly can. That's it. Like if if you're knocking your socks off, if you if you watch it and you can honestly sit here and go, this thing's really great. And you can show right. it to your friends friends and people and, and get your friends of your friends, people that you don't know. No, exactly. To so come in. Honest feedback. Yeah. And have them sit down and then they'll tell you whether or not it's great. And, you know, don't, there's so much stress that folks put on making projects where it's like, okay, so this is the project that's going to be the one that changes my life. And it's like, okay, how long have you been making movies? Oh, I just started. Okay. Well, how about you you uh, lower those expectations a little bit and say, this mm-hmm. is the project that I'm going to learn how to be a better editor. This is the project that I'm going to learn how to shoot with. This is the project I'm going to learn how to cast actors with. And if you're setting your uh, goals to be a bit more attainable personally, then accidentally, I think you'll come across something really great because you're hyper-focused on what you should be focused on, which isn't, this short's going to change my life and suddenly I'm going to go to Hollywood and it's going to make everything happen. Because- the the chances of that happening it's like one in a billion oh yeah but it's nice to have that dream i mean i remember <laughs> i made a short 11 or 12 years ago yep and i was dreaming about that i was like wow this looks so good it's done so well and people are gonna love this and it's gonna i'm gonna get chances i never had before and it'll open doors now the success that came out of it wasn't what i envisioned <laughs> it came out differently uh-huh. okay and uh-huh. it got me in a different career path and all this other stuff but Certainly that hope for success drove me yeah. to make it as best as I can. And then looking back on it retroactively, I was like, okay, cool. These are the lessons that I learned from it. This is what I would do differently. Uh, because w- I think what you what people have to realize is that 
you have to be able to look back and say, all right, I'm going to do it again. <laughs> this time, <laughs> I'm going to change things. I'm going to improve the process. You know, I think a lot of your your podcast is talking about that process, right? Yep. yep. Um, you know, what it takes to be a filmmaker and, and being in love with it. Well, you have to be in love with the failures, too. Yes. You have to be in love with that. You have to be in love with all the lessons that you learn on the way. Otherwise, you know, I, I don't know. I, I've been in the business you know, on and off 25 years, mm -hmm. right? So I started 30 years ago when I was a kid. I actually had my own TV show in a local cable access. Oh, no kidding. Uh, for, through high school, yeah. So that's where I started. What was, the, what was the TV show about? It was called Digital Basement. This was when Wayne's World was first on SNL. <laughs> so, so you had like a Wayne's World show? Yeah, well, I mean, it, it, it was tongue in cheek because the intro would take place in my parents' basement. I would literally say, hey, I'm in my parents' basement. We're starting this digital basement episode. But then it would jump to like at school because most of the content was shot at school. Right. So, you know, I, I had everything from like cheerleaders that did news, you know, like <laughs> news broadcast news to hanging out at homecoming game interviewing the porta potty or it was like very comedic or we would remix like we would take uh, songs that we liked, uh -huh. like, you know, we, I was big into new wave back then. Right. Like yeah. New wave, like all this rock from, from UK, you know, like uh, stone roses and, Oh yeah, man. And Charlton's UK and, you know, stuff like that. And then we would take these tracks and then take anime that we liked and then make music videos oh. and they illegally put this content <laughs> on our network <laughs> mixed together and people loved it. Uh, people really loved it. And I was editing linear. It was linear tape to tape edit. We were using SVHS. That's awesome, um, man. That's media. awesome. And I had shot with VHS because my dad had a camcorder at home where we shot family functions. So I'd already used that camera and I already understood how to use it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So for me, it was like, it was great. That's um, I, I, I enjoyed it. When I first started years and years and years ago, I mm -hmm. was a manager for local access. Uh, television station. So we were running around oh, shooting. Cool. Oh yeah. We were shooting SVHS stuff and trying to make little pieces right. and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. You end up learning yeah, it. Yeah. It sounds like you learn the same thing where you, you learn um, how to process audience reactions. You learn, you know, I, you start to get the fever for uh, great audience response and you have an appreciation right. of, of great content. Or the power of the camera. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You, you could take a camera around all these people that thought you were a nerd and <laughs> hang out with you all of a sudden want to be your friend. Like, yeah. I made so many friends in your year in high school. And it was literally because I was this nerdy guy that also could shoot content. Nah. People loved it. Ah. People lo they wanted to be on camera. Like, you know, girls that would never talk to me wanted to, like, hang out with me. Oh, so she invite me over to do stuff. And I was like, what the hell? <laughs> this is crazy. Well, life, that's, a, that's a life changer right there, right? So is that oh, man, for a kid when you're, yeah, yeah. growing up in the west suburbs of Chicago and, you know, don't have a girlfriend, then heck yeah. <laughs> All of a sudden, when you're, when you're popular, you're loving it. Yeah. You, you know, you're, you're just loving the attention. But also, you, you learn what you talked about, the audience, how you can... Mm -hmm change their minds about stuff mm -hmm. you can make them think about things that they didn't think about before or you know people that never watched anime because there was a subset of us that watched anime anime wasn't as popular as it is now because the access wasn't as great yeah certainly we had a lot of shows that were reformulated japanese shows on american television but like straight up like anime that me and my friends used to watch which was like fan-based uh a subtitled vhs tapes right yeah, like yeah they didn't watch that stuff so this is the stuff that I, we were using to remix and introduce to people so 
they were seeing stuff they'd never seen before too oh. or hearing tracks they never heard before and so i was like whoa you know as a kid i'm like wow you can really change the world really and then if you pay attention to movies you certainly watch movies that introduce new ideas to you that the new perspectives that of course you've never experienced yourself yeah because you're not that person yeah yeah for, for whatever reason or you, you never thought about it that way so i realized how important it was i went on to actually get a political science degree first before i got a film degree mm -hmm. and that's because politics is tied to entertainment yeah very much um, so very much so. yeah i went I went to uh, work in uh, campaign politics after my first degree uh, in Chicago. Wow. And I realized that campaign politics is just a marketing event. That's <laughs> all it is. It has nothing to do with reality. It has nothing to do with truth. It has nothing to do with policy. Yep. Because I studied policy, and there certainly wasn't any policy making, creating, or analyzing during a campaign. That does not happen. No. The whole thing about campaign is focused on getting the votes. Yep. And it's very mathematical, it's very scientific, and very manipulative. <laughs> and it's just a marketing campaign. Yeah. Nothing more, nothing less. Yeah. You start to really get, like, I, I was I had, I was exposed to that when I was much younger in the business, because politics, like you said, are very interwoven with stuff. And we were, I was part of, like, the Sempty group, and there was a lot of politicians in there. And then we, you end up sort of seeing... You know, politicians gravitate towards media because it is the ultimate platform, right? It's the, it's the you know what was the old pickup truck in the old days that they'd mm -hmm. stand on the bed on. It's just a much larger thing, and so they really sort of circle and gravitate towards it uh, because they understand the power of manipulation that it has, and it it's gotten you know exponentially more precise. And especially with social media now and everything. Yes, very targeted. Yeah, it's, um, it's crazy. And then, of course, it makes it even more manipulative because now you can you have groups of people that you're talking to all at once. So mm -hmm. really, you can tell them anything you want. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's it's very interesting. So this might sound really crazy, but you know, being in the industry in the film industry and entertainment for this many years. Um, one thing I don't do is watch television news at all. <laughs> I get that. Ever. I get that. I totally get that. I, I just don't because yeah. I'm like, that. that's just a program. Like yep. literally that's a show that someone put together <laughs> to sell some stuff to you. Like you, you're going to watch the commercials, right? Like that's, that's why you're watching it. Yep. It's entertainment. Yep. Documentaries are entertainment. Documentaries are fiction. Yep. Documentaries are not non-fiction. Documentaries are not reality. Yep. Documentaries are manipulative pieces of fiction. They're storytelling. <laughs> so for me, like, you know, if I really want my mind not to be kind of inundated with manipulation, I have to pick and choose, you know, what yeah. content I'm exposing myself to. Yeah. So certainly being behind the scenes and going, you know, doing local cable access, <laughs> doing, you know, not just in high school, but like the local TV station, working in broadcast, working in broadcast in foreign countries, and then also working in the film industry, not just the television industry. I'm very much aware of what everyone does behind the scenes. <laughs> it's not pretty, my friends. It's not pretty whatsoever. It doesn't matter what news channel you're watching on television. They all have an arc. They scare you. They take you through an emotional roller coaster. At the very end of the program, they reassure you that they'll be there for you tomorrow so that you feel safe and you'll tune in. Yeah. That's it. Every single episode of a news, local, national, international, it's the exact same thing. Same, same emotional arc. So, you know, if you like that content, power to you. 
that that's your entertainment. That's where you spend your half hour hour with your eyeballs. That's up to you. Sure. But that's not the truth. Yeah. 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 The thing that I found incredibly depressing, the more that I learned about it was that, you know, how there is a specific formula and then they all just sort of log it in. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it's not like they're pushing the envelope. It's not like one news place is like, well, let's, let's be completely honest about it. Or even if you want to go the other route, there's not, I guess maybe Fox news, but there isn't a news place. that's like, let's be very manipulative. They just find this formula. And then that they send all, it seems like they send all of the, the anchors, the producers to the same school. A lot of them go through like uh, Emerson back in Boston. They sort of filter them through the same sort of system and they come out and they're like, is there just like a factory where they like yes yes there is a factory and actually it's even deeper than you think Mm. um most of our local news stations are now owned by one one owner and they do spread propaganda i mean you can watch videos on youtube of local news uh just basically saying the same phrase over and over again mm-hmm. and you and, and they're funny because they're like you know there's media out there that's manipulative and we feel like freedoms are important blah 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 it's all this conservative speak <laughs> and essentially they made everyone across the nation say the exact same thing so it's the same you know on the teleprompter it's it's the exact same paragraph yeah and they and someone cut it all together so it's way more manipulative than people think it's very much they know what they're doing a fox news or a cnn or any of them they know what their audience is what their audience wants and then they make that content it's the exact same as a filmmaker (laughs) if i know that i'm good at making comedy and i'm going to make comedy about physical things and i'm going to you know make a new version of mr bean i know who my what my audience is and so i'm going to cater to that audience <laughs> it's true on purpose you're going to come up with all the gags that people expect then you're going to throw in some new ones that are twists that's what you're going to do you have to do a callback if you made a sci-fi movie you have to do it a certain storytelling way yep yep it's, you have to do world building you have to show the scope and then how someone's going to save the world or whatnot you have to like play it out a certain way yep uh that's what we do with genres the news genre is the exact same thing. <laughs> they're very, they know their audience. Yeah. They know what they're doing. Yeah. They know how much money their audience has. They know which products their audience wants to buy. And so they base their news cycle on what products they want to sell you. It's crazy. And the, the thing that's, I think, even more, I don't want to use, I guess sad was the first word that came to mind, but maybe it's not sad. The thing that I've, I find that is even more confusing to me is that, if you try to educate the folks that are plugged into that system, they rebel against it instantly because they need that sort of comfort system. They need that sort of regularity. And it's like religion. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I've been trying to get my parents off of local news and and uh, national news for years. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. not going to happen. Yeah. It's like, okay, I get it. You're getting your dopamine rush there. Like, uh, you That's know, what it is. Yeah. Like some people may be getting their dopamine rush by looking at dog yeah. videos on Instagram. Mm-hmm. You're getting it from like, you know, worried about terrorism every five fucking minutes. You know what I mean? It's like, okay. Oh, no, absolutely. Because that scare is like going to a horror movie. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So you love it. You love the feeling that it gives you. And you love the fact that someone's taking care of you and informing you. Good thing they're informing me, keeping me safe. Yeah. Right? It's, it's so manipulative. So as a filmmaker, you should observe mm-hmm. reality in the world. You should take this as a lesson mm-hmm. into your filmmaking. So hypothetically, I'm going to make a movie now. 
right? Mm-hmm. And I'm going to make a movie about cat warriors from outer space, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So now I have this concept. You really got to think when you're making this movie, who is your audience? Yes. Why are they going to buy this? Why would they come to this cat, cat warriors from outer space? Who are they? Mm-hmm. What kind of interest do they already have? So, because every time you make a content, that's what everyone else is doing with your content. So, if you go to a distributor, that's what the distributor is doing. They're doing this thinking for you. Yeah. They're charging you a buck for it. If you're streaming on some services, the streamers are doing this research for you. They're charging you a buck for it. So, the way you have more control over your content, the way you can make more money or more success is really think about who your audience is and cater to it. And then go for hardcore for that audience. So if I make a, a low-budget independent film about cat warriors from outer space, I really need to target where should this play? <laughs> Who's going to be my audience? <laughs> Who's going to watch it? Well, if it's a short film, you know, there's some YouTube channels that specialize in sci-fi content. So that's a good outlet. Probably not going to make a lot of money, though. Yeah. Sci-fi channel or certain streamers like to have certain types of short films. And sci-fi shorts is big. People love that. So... I'm going to look at that as an outlet. I'll look at also which film festival should I play at? Yeah. You know, should I be at fantasy fest? Where should I be? You know, where's the, where's the audience going to be excited that they're going to tell everyone else about it. And then the word was spread. What I'm not going to do is try to go for all the big festivals just because they're big festivals. Right. It's not going to help because a sci-fi short will do better at South by Southwest than it will at Sundance, for example. So why would I want to go to Sundance? And then be in a midnight short screening that no one watches. A hundred percent, just for the <laughs> right? just for the cl- just for the clout. <clears throat> and at this point, it doesn't matter if you have laurels on a short or not. It doesn't fucking make a difference. So, like, like if I'm going to a film festival as a short filmmaker, I unless I have a feature film that's in my pocket, and I've talked to producers from uh, large production companies, Hollywood production companies, they don't have time to go see the, the shorts blocks. They're going to see the feature film blocks during that time, same period. So if you're going into a situation like that, you have to ask yourself, what do I want out of this? You know, what is it? Why am I going to the film festival? Do I want to watch this with an audience that I don't know? That's fucking valuable. That's very valuable. Sure. Um, Do I want to meet other filmmakers? Do I want to connect with, with peers? Do I want to, you know, maybe win uh, some sort of prize money or something? Like if you are setting your goals at, a reasonable level and an understand like an achievable level. I, I guess that it comes back to my point that I was making before where it's like, okay, cool. I made this short film in my backyard. This is going to, I'm going to be the next Kevin fucking Smith because I made this short film. It's like, that seems like such an unachievable goal that you're just setting yourself up for disappointment with. Like if you're smarter about it and you're like, okay, what is, what did, what did like a uh, fantastic fest program last year? So you go through the programming of it last year. What did they program right. the year before that? Then you start to get an idea of the taste of the programmers for those festivals. And you're like, is mm-hmm. my, is my thing even worth going there? Or maybe I'll write something that I feel like might fit their taste to be able to go into that scenario. So I, I don't think there's anything wrong with doing that research and development and being smart about your stuff before you even get started, you know? Oh, not as there, not only is there nothing wrong with that, that's the really right way to approach it, is that what are you going to get out of it? Um, I think a filmmaker quickly finds that it's very expensive just to go to a fest, just to go to a fest, <laughs> yeah. especially if they have a short, because then they'll be totally disappointed in the audience size yeah. and who actually shows up. Because most of the time at short film festivals, it's not hard to 
pack the audience in the first few screenings because everyone brings their friends. So if there's 10 filmmakers, you know, that are like eight filmmakers, which is typical being a shorts block, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Times, however many friends they have, then obviously it's much easier to, to get a crowd to come. But it's not necessarily the valuable crowd that you would get like in a packed house for a feature film where you're really getting a chance to see audience feedback and reaction, you know? Yeah. So you got to think to yourself, like, all right, well, what is my short film getting me at a place like South by Southwest? Well, access. That's it's, true. it's getting you access. It got you a platinum badge. Yeah. So what are you doing with that platinum badge? You know, like yeah. which workshops did you sign up for? Do you have a list of producers that you know are coming that you want to meet? Yeah. And do you have something? Do you have your next project in your back pocket? If you don't have your next project, it's not as valuable, you know, because what are your other options? Hire me for an ongoing job based <laughs> on my short. Yeah. Hire me to do a video for you or, or for your company. Hire me for some creative content. You know, it kind of limits your choices. But if you come in like, oh, no, I got a pilot script and I have a feature script and here's my short and totally the same. It's like, oh, OK, well, let's have some meetings. Yeah. And then you, it jumpstarts your the next level search, you know, uh, for what you want to do in your career. So it's very important to, uh, I think, a necessity to do the research. Okay, time to take a moment, talk about our sponsors. Um, I will say this, Zeiss is not a sponsor of the show as of yet, but uh, Zeiss, I'd like you to be a sponsor of the show. That would be really nice. Uh, you should go check out uh, the Zeiss products at Zeiss.com. Like I said, they're not paying me. Um, so I'm not going to put a link in the description of the show, but you can go there and check them out. See what they got going on. Um, but definitely uh, go talk. Uh, with Snehal, if you are a young filmmaker and you really want to form a connection with a lens company, great place to go. But supporting the show, let's talk about the people that actually support the show. Uh, if you're a filmmaker in the marketplace right now for a new computer, like your old Mac is not doing it, and then you're still paying off that fucking Mac because isn't it crazy the, how much those things cost? They're ridiculous for the unboxing experience. And then the new ones, like the new laptops, you have to buy the top of the line because you can't upgrade anything because they're all soldered in on the board, right? Ugh. If you're going to buy a new computer, buy a PC, build a PC, make something, right? It's now, we now live in a world in which all the software runs on both systems. What I like about PCs is that they're now stable, no blue screens of death, no crashes. I haven't had a crash on my PC at all. Uh, that's that shit that used to happen in the early 2000s. That does not happen today. Uh, the newest versions of Windows are very stable. Um, and what I like about PCs is that they're not gatekeeping you. The software isn't gatekeeping you from the folders that you need to get access to. It's always a pain in the ass searching for hidden folders and trying to find out where plugins are hidden and where the, what folders they're supposed to go into in a Mac. It's a nightmare. I have to then do like Google search like... Where the fuck is this plugin supposed to go for Resolve? And then I ended up in some forum with a bunch of nerds that are hate that hate to be in there for some reason. You ever notice this? Back in the day, it was like Top Cow forums, right? You go in and you're like, guys, I have this trouble. And there's always that one asshole in that fucking forum that's like, well, you should know the keyboard shortcuts. It's like, dude, I'm not here to get fucking <laughs> sass from you. Just tell me how it works. 
right? Fuck that. I, I needed to find a company that had a great support system, really good customer service, a company that I could buy a computer from and I can go to them for questions, right? Puget Systems is the, the ultimate resource. If you're building a, uh, a PC, if you want to buy a PC, you can go there and buy a PC based upon the software that you're going to use. They'll give you a baseline package and then they want to communicate with their customers. So you can build something custom. If you're someone that is running a post-production facility, if you're someone that is trying to put together uh, computers for Unreal rendering, right? Maybe you're running a volume suite and you need custom built computers. And oftentimes computers that have the need to put external hardware into them, right? Uh, or even internal hardware cards, right? I'm running a black magic card in my Puget system right now so that I can have an external monitor when I'm using Resolve. It's hard to do that with the other machines. Go to PugetSystems.com and just check out what it is that I rant and rave about all the time. I know buying a computer is a, is a save up expense, but if you're in the market for it, do it. And then go look at Puget Systems now just in case uh, you have a crash, just in case there's a software update that renders your hardware useless again. Just know what's out there, know your options. Don't feel like you're trapped and you have to spend an ass load of money on an unboxing experience. PugetSystems.com is the place to go. Uh, supporting the show is Fujifilm. Fujifilm are my favorite new sponsor of the show because we're shooting with Fujifilm cameras these days and we're getting beautiful, beautiful images from them. High quality, high end, large format photographs, amazing color profiles for the video world. Uh, I'm shooting on their X series cameras and um, I have the ability to shoot longer than 15 minutes on a DSLR type camera. That's insane, right? Because most of those cameras stop after every 15 minutes. So if you're recording a podcast, if you're recording a live event, they're great cameras for that. And uh, I've done a partner, I partnered up with our other sponsor on the show, Photo Deox. You guys have heard me talk about them. Photo Deox makes lens adapters. So let's say that you've got, which we do, we have some Zeiss lenses that are Nikon mount. And we love those lenses. We love the look of those lenses, but we're no longer shooting with Nikon, right? We're now shooting with Fujifilm. So what do I do? Do I get rid of those lenses? I want that look again. Do I have to buy new ones with uh, Fuji mounts? No, I can get myself a photo deox adapter which will then go on my GFX series for the large format, or it'll go on my X series for the video format, and it'll go from Nikon to Fuji, so I can use all my old lenses again. That's insane. And the prices for these adapters are really affordable. They're less than a lens. So you buy one adapter with your new Fujifilm camera, and you have access to all your old lenses. All your old lenses. Let me say that again. You buy one photo deox adapter and you can use it on a brand new camera. Uh, dude, get your hands on their PL mount one because then you can go and rent from a place like Boca Rentals all these new cinema lenses and you can be shooting beautiful cinematic images, the kind of images that are shot for Netflix on your Fujifilm camera. Pretty crazy the way the market's working right now. It's pretty affordable. I love it. The combination of all three of those elements for me right now, my Fujifilm cameras, uh, my Photo Deox lens adapter, 
and my relationship with Boca Rentals here in Los Angeles enables me to shoot stuff that when I walk into offices like Michael Bay's offices, or if I walk into any large production company, they look at my proof of concept movies and they go, this must have cost you $200,000. How the fuck did you do this? It's because of these elements. And this is what I love about an open market for hardware is that if you do a little research, you do a little nitty gritty, you can pull together some really cool stuff. And if you're not just a trend chaser when it comes to gear, if you're not just reading or you don't even read trades anymore, it's whatever shows up on your Instagram stories and some douchebag with a fucking camera on his shoulder leaning up against some hot car going, if you wanted to make uh, six figures doing uh, commercials, by the way, as I go off on this tangent, anybody that sells you an ad on Instagram about a course online that is going to teach you how to get clients is bullshit. Because if they were getting all those clients, they wouldn't have time to do a course online. Take that. Take that. And I'm not going to call out any of them specifically, but I will tell you this. This is me going on a tirade in the middle of our ad read. Anytime I see these things show up on my Instagram feed, and it does on my uh, In Love With The Process feed because the algorithm knows that we're a show about filmmakers. So I get every one of these snake oil salesmen desperate, barely in work, looking for a second uh, a source of revenue, don't even have the fucking credits on IMDb. All they do is watch Instagram videos and YouTube videos from other filmmakers that are desperate and regurgitate the same bullshit. So it seems like everybody wants to get their hands on the same bullshit camera because a guy who has trouble getting work told you you should use that camera. I will never do that on this show. Anytime I tell you about cameras or gear or stuff that I'm using, it's stuff that I'm physically using and I'm getting paid to use. And here's the big trick. I'm getting them as affordable as possible so that I can charge rentals on them with my clients and improve my rates because clients these days don't want to pay us what we're worth. Have you ever noticed that? You're getting paid 20% less every time you do a job, right? So what I do is make sure that I get my gear as cheap as possible so that I can charge for it to get my rate back where it needs to be. Okay? Oh, that was a little rant. So, <laughs> Puget Systems, Photo Deox, Boca Rentals, great places to support you and your needs. This is what I use. That's the gear I use. I love all these folks. They're awesome. All right? Um... That's it, man. That's it. Those are the ad reads for today. I apologize for the rant there, but every once in a while, your boy gets heated. All right, let's get back into it. I've learned um, through the process of doing this for years. I mean, I've been directing now for over 20 years. So I've learned that uh, short films, I've had more success with short films online than I have yes. in any film festival that I've ever sent stuff Absolutely. to. And so Absolutely. 
you know, uh, 12 cam got picked up by Ridley Scott's company because it was online. I got repped mm-hmm. by UTA and my management company because my shorts were online. And uh, I didn't even have my shorts in, <coughs> online for the public to see. I had I sent a link to my shorts to a friend of mine who writes articles, and she loved it. And she wrote an article that was on an industry website that said Hollywood should make this movie. And people had to come and see it. And so even now, I, like 12 Cam just went viral on Instagram. And mm-hmm. uh, you have to write to me and tell me your three favorite horror films. And if I agree with you, I'll send you a link. There's a sense, oh, wow. of, there's a sense of exclusivity. Yeah. And so the, online has been completely more powerful for me as a shorts filmmaker um, getting features made than going to a film festival. And Oh, yeah. Makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, if you're going to a film festival as just an attendee, right, let's mm-hmm. say, mm-hmm. Uh, think about it. You have to successfully be in the right theater at the right time to hopefully be able to see that content that you might like. Yeah. Whereas if you're on the internet, you search for some keywords and get some recommendations, you could see it right away. Yeah. Um, it's all about consumption and opportunities for consumption. Shorts film block usually at a festival like Sundance is repeated three times. So there's only three opportunities to see your short the whole festival, the yeah. week of the festival. And it's only at certain times. And it's usually screening at the same time that some big feature screening that everybody wants to go see. Exactly, that everyone wants to see. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Or two big features that everyone wants to see. That's just the name of the game. Yeah. So yeah. what are the chances of you seeing, the, you're getting the right audience? It's slim. Yeah. Yeah. Slim to none, even at a big festival. So it makes sense that online you would you would find I mean, certainly I feel the same way. I executive produced a horror short called Stucco mm-hmm. in 2019, made the festival rounds, won an award at South by Southwest for creature effects, um, won multiple cinematography awards, won a best acting award. But the number of people total that saw the film in theaters while it was making the festival round. Versus the first day of viewing on the Alter Channel, the Alter Channel blew it away on YouTube yeah. within an hour. <laughs> right? Yeah. So it's number three on Alter right now. That's wonderful. Uh, in terms of views. So, congrats. You know, it, within one hour, we had the same audience slice that we got over a year of trying, right? Yeah. Yeah. Certainly, of course, being at the festivals helped because being at festivals is a kind of like a calling card, right? So, especially if you're at the right ones. Mm-hmm. Um, like Oscar, uh, I would always say, you know, aim for the Oscar qualifying festivals first. If you have a short film, yeah. Um, if you're at the right ones, then certainly a channel like Alter or others are interested. I mean, we got short of the week, we got Alter. You know, there's a few others that really showed up for us. Yeah, but it's not a lot of money to be made in any of these cases, mm-hmm. especially like a channel like Alter. You got to sign over a bunch, basically. Yeah. Uh, so you're not going to earn over a long period of time. Right, because this is not your own channel, but certainly they have ways of finding an audience, right? So you're right. Like online made it much easier for the right audience to be able to see it and consume the content. That's what we wanted. That's why we made the project in the first place, is for it to be consumed. So yeah, yeah, yeah. You just got to be online's fantastic. Yeah, you just got to be smart about it. I think that no no matter what you're doing, it's better. Like if I came to you and said, hey, you got to watch my short film, you go, of course, this guy's going to promote his own short film. But if someone else comes to you, like if I went to you and I said, hey, you got to go watch Gina's short film. If someone tells you to go watch someone else's content, then people are more apt to do so. 
Right. Yeah. Because you gave an endorsement to Gina's work and exactly. And you're like, Oh, oh okay. Yeah. I want to see what she did. She seems pretty cool. Let's see what she made. Yeah, of course. So absolutely. That should be the goal. I mean, that's always been my goal. You want someone else to tell the people yes. that, you, that you're cool. That's what you want. You want someone else to go, totally. this person's fucking rad. And you go, oh, okay, yeah, great, great. Instead of you being, because yes. when you're younger, you walk around, you go, I'm the shit and I make really great stuff. And you sort of roll your eyes and you go, oh, of course you think you are. But, yeah. <laughs> but I hope you keep that up for the next 30 years. Yeah. <laughs> keep up that attitude, kid. <laughs> the old cynicism. Um, yeah. But, you know, I mean, I, I would assume that was the benefit of the film festivals for you because then- Alter can then say, all right, look, this has already been through. This piece has already been exactly. through a selection it's already been indoors. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's already the audience, you know, although limited, loved it and gave you awards. Mm -hmm. And the, obviously the festival programmers who see tons of stuff and uh, are filtering have filtered for you. So Alter doesn't have to really analyze to see if the film's going to do well on their channel or not. Um, they could just see that it already has been endorsed and, and uh, gotten the endorsement of all these other people. And so it, it filters it for them. Yeah. It makes it so much easier. I mean, if it was longer, like if, I think if our film was a little bit longer, like half an hour, it would have even had a life maybe even on channels like Sci-Fi Channel or streaming services too. Yeah. Because they, they look for that kind of content. They, they want 25 or so minute bites, you know, that they can program in between features and other shows. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I mean... That, that's the thing is about getting other people to buzz about it. Um, that's why PR is important. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people don't get, think about that. A yeah, lot you of people don't get PR when you have something big, mm -hmm. but I would say, wait, wait until like you're winning a bunch of awards and you have a project ready to go <laughs> before you start paying for it. It's like PR for PR's sake. doesn't make any sense. PR <laughs> is always for a goal, right? So what's the goal? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, to get your next job. Okay, cool. Well then have something ready for a path and let someone else talk about it. That's the best way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you could be clever about it too. Like I, you can buy, you can go out there and, and pay a large PR firm to do stuff, especially when you get into like feature film stuff that makes sense. But on your own, you have your own fucking PR platform. You have your own yes. social media channels. So like, Great. there's no reason you could be setting up prior. You could be setting up years before you decide that you're going to finally do your short film, your, your PR platform by just, posting your processes and how exciting and how much fun it is to make mm -hmm. your stuff and learn. People love to live vicarious. Nine to fivers love to live vicariously through us artists. That's they what they do. They love BTS. Yes. They it's love a it. Thing. Yeah. They love it. They want to know what was the nitty gritty, who fought with who on set. They want to know, <laughs> like, you know, take it seriously, like do a little gossip, you know? Yeah. Uh, but not in a bad way, but like, you know, gossip during and during, during the process. Yeah. Uh, make sure you post stuff. Um, talk about the, the the behind the scenes and what's going on. Get people involved so that they're interested. Um, mm -hmm. And then learn from like some of the larger organizations and outfits out there. Uh, I think a, you know horror is a nice genre to learn from, which is funny to say. <laughs> I'm, I really don't see myself as a horror person, but I have like produced this horror short, and you know because of that, I, I started looking more into the to the market and stuff. It's, it's like huge Megan, right now. It's huge. Megan that right came now. out this, this last year, right? That yep. movie. Yep. It's an independent film. It's not a huge budget. Right. And it's really like a kind of like a sequel to Annabelle type of thing, but it's its own thing, but they did such a great job with the viral stuff. Yes. I mean, you never know what's going to hit and like, what's going to be a hit and what's going to go viral. Like that's hard, 
Um, it used to be a little bit easier to, to do that stuff. I used to do viral videos when YouTube was very young and, and MySpace was still around. Mm-hmm. So there were some formulas, but now it's like out the door. Um, you never know what's going to hit people's interests. But by leading into it, I think the Megan filmmakers did a good job. Like they took that energy and they built upon it, right? They didn't like shy away from it. Yeah. And and they went with it. They didn't like, you know, send out cease and desist letters or do something stupid. Like they just went with it and, and, and celebrated the fact that people are making crazy dancing videos with this robot, right? Yeah. But it worked. It worked. It, it really got the audience. It got my attention. Yeah. I'm not even to that genre. And I'm like, I want to see this. It's about an AI robot going crazy. So it's basically like ex machina for kids, right? Like, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I want to see this. It's, it's wild right. when you watch their marketing campaign when they first came out, because originally they were yes. just like, hey, this is Chucky, right? This is like. Right? Yeah, it was, right? Right. And they were it, just, they were like, hey, here's a new modern Chucky. It's a, it's like right. a, it's a girl Chucky. It's a little so bit more glossy. menacing. Right. It's a little bit more glossy and it can mm-hmm. move and do shit. And, and you're like, it failed. Like, so there are initial marketing scheme on it was was trash like no one really cared about it and i feel like because we gina does this uh you you know gina so gina does this for pop stars and we continuously have these conversations on the phone and it's the the balance right now that's happening and this is what's happening behind the scenes for any company right now it's do we spend our money on artistic mm-hmm. marketing, or do we dump our money into TikTok marketing? And so you've right. you've got these two different camps, and the TikTok camp is like low budget, don't spend a lot mm-hmm. of cash, hire someone that's on staff, and then let's try to replicate TikTok videos that have been successful for for like high stars. So, like, how do we? Uh, get a video of you, you know, getting dressed and jumping up and down in your outfits change. I feel like the same sort of thing happened with them over there where they went, okay, she dances in this thing. The TikTok people went, let's do TikTok dance stuff. And so uh, I, to be even more cynical about it, yeah, I, uh, but someone else did it. It was a third party because they yeah, posted it, the trailer online and then someone cut the dance and set it to a, a music track, right? That was like, yeah, and then all of a sudden, whenever someone heard that sound, they associated it with Megan dancing. So there were tons and tons of versions of this. So mm-hmm. it wasn't even like these guys did it. I think what happened was they probably learned their lesson from that, and then changed the way that they presented the film to the public. Well, you know, I, you want you you, you want to get even more cynical about it though. Multiple mm-hmm. times, even like I think that they've released the info on when they made the female Ghostbuster stuff. And right. and the, all the controversy around that, the controversy was started by Sony. So it's somebody else that signs on and creates an account and then starts the controversy. And oh, so there's a there's a level of that that we see consistently, and we see it all the time. Where you think a stranger is setting this thing up at some random account, and it's somebody that works for the company that's starting this. Speaking the, of the thing. Ghostbusters with the all female cast, I was actually excited because I was like, "Oh, cool, a retelling of Ghostbusters." I mean, I love Ghostbusters. You know, Me too. Like, yeah, yeah. Grew up on it, so you know, played the video game on Commodore sixty four, and and uh, loved the first movie, loved <laughs> the second movie, which was uh, pretty crazy. Sigourney yep. Weaver writhing. On the top of a building, <laughs> really fantastic. Yeah. The marshmallow man in the background, love uh-huh, it. Uh-huh. Um, I was just disappointed in the film. Like, I didn't get the controversy because I was like, "Oh, I don't understand." Like, you know, some dudes are mad that it's all women ghosts. Like, who cares about those guys? <laughs> That's stupid. I, I uh, mean, being mad about something about about fictional characters is just dumb to me. But um, yes, but the funny thing was, like, I watched the movie and I couldn't get through fifteen minutes. 
Well, dude, but I that, was like, oh, oh, this this is bad. Here's, <laughs> this here, is the, there's nothing to do with who the cast is or even the actors. Like, this is just not a great film. Well, he, he, uh, I bring it up consistently because I feel like it's one of the early large films that was using negativity on mm-hmm. social media as a marketing scheme. And so I think that the I don't know if that was the first. I think there was plenty before that. Yeah, but this one was sure. for, this one was like the big one, right? This was the one that was like incredibly successful and had all sorts of new stuff. And I'm sure that mm-hmm. there are other ones, but this was the one that had people raving about it. And I just did this recently and I I talked about this on another episode, but when I yeah. did 12KM and, and 12KM went viral and we've had like 6 million people watch this clip on it, mm-hmm. um, I've t- suddenly had all this traffic coming to my site, right? And so mm-hmm. I started to, I did a test. I would post two different types of reviews. So I would post mm-hmm. a positive review and I put that mm-hmm. up there. And before it even got to the people, Instagram would decide, right? So I would have like 340... Uh, thousand views on my posts, right? So mm-hmm. I would post a positive. Instagram's algorithm would go, we're only going to show it to 6,000 people. Mm-hmm. I would post a negative review. And usually a well, negative that's review that was- popular. Come on, man. But, well, people Instagram, want the dirt. Insta- <laughs> Instagram even knows who, want, who, who wants the dirt. Right. So like- They're like, oh, my, our people have been choosing negative reviews over to positive reviews for the past seven years. So yeah. they're what they want. But <laughs> I, th- I think that that's a big marketing scheme right now. And I think that that was the yeah. marketing scheme behind Ghostbusters. I don't know about, I don't, I'm not sure if uh, they wanted to lean into that. I think they got caught up in the controversy. And the thing is, our, our, the way that uh, you know news media and, and newspapers and magazines make their stories is, of course, with again, just like your experiment told us with the negative, right? So yep. I think everyone wanted to talk about the negative aspect. I mean, the actress could have made one comment during an interview that she didn't think about. And then later on, it becomes like the center of the controversy. I, I think it's dumb. I, all of it's dumb. If you ask yeah. me, I yeah. mean, the merit of the film should be like, is it a good film or not? Not right. like, Oh yeah. You know, like I have a problem with their casting. Like, I don't really care if you have a problem with the casting. Yeah, I don't who care cares about anyone that. has any problem with any casting. So what? It's not yours to cast. You didn't cast the movie. You didn't make right. the decisions. Right? right. Like, right. you know, uh, casting is dumb. It, it doesn't make any sense. There's, there's been plenty of uh, whitewashing in our history of making movies up until even two or three years ago where we've completely changed characters to white from Asian, black, <laughs> Indian, or whatever. It's crazy. For years. It's so, crazy. like, all of a sudden, like, if Thor is a black woman, like, uh, so what? <laughs> what difference does it make? Thor's not even real. You know, you're taking, you took historical characters and you made them and changed them around. So if you're fine with that, if you're fine with Americans playing, you know, uh, uh, the Kings of Europe and the Kings and Queens of Europe or, or Egypt, then shit, you should be okay with anything. Yeah. At that yeah, point. yeah. So yeah. what difference does it make if we have like a, a blue furball play Superman, you know, in a movie, that's great. I, so it, as long as the movie's good. As yeah, long as the exactly. movie's if good. The blue furball kills it. And really yeah. reminds us of the Superman theme. Yes. And we really feel it. And, exactly. and it has an emotional draw. I mean, it'll do better than Justice League. So, hey, you know. But I, I guess my point is, is that I want to make sure that the intent of it is that mm-hmm. you are inspired by, like, the, the intent is that there is a storyteller and an artist that is inspired by this blue fur ball, And they're like, right. I woke up and I had a vision of this blue fur ball playing Superman. Yeah. I don't 
And I feel like more often than not, the intent is, hey, I don't really have an idea for this failed genre or failed franchise that really hasn't done shit since the mm-hmm. 90s. So what if we make it a blue fur ball? Well, what's the fucking story? Well, there isn't a story yet, but everybody's going to be so pissed off about it being a blue fur ball that they're going to talk about this movie. We're going to get all the marketing that we need based on this blue fur ball. And we'll just apply some bullshit fucking formula for whatever the narrative of this movie is, because that's unimportant. That's not the important thing. I mean, dude, this is what I hear from executives right now where well yeah but th- that's <laughs> that, that's every franchise movie you've ever seen my friend <laughs> so i don't know what you're talking about there's no different from any other reason why they make franchise films yeah i, I get it i get just it that i mean come on hey, let's be real like there are very, okay we're used to good sequels now sure at our age sure you and i yes that did not happen before my friend that's there very were no true. good sequels. That's, that's very true. You knew if you watch part two or son of, or, you know, uh, whatever, that it's going to be bad. Like it's not going to be better. They're, the sequels are not usually better. They're usually just a cash grab. And it's usually a studio going, we have an IP that's familiar. Let's make something out of it. Right. Sure. Sure. But sure. that doesn't necessarily, that doesn't necessarily mean that the filmmakers go into it like that. So when the story of ghostbusters with the female version that was written, there could have been a, a really nice intent on their part. Like, Hey, let's flip the script and let's do something different. I, I have a concept and I think this angle could work now that from what the, you know, from that, from that point to where the movie is made is two different things, right? Of like, course, of course. maybe, you know, it didn't work. And for a lot of people, they're not excited about the film, which is, you know, fair enough. It's not easy to make a movie, but, uh, I don't think the intent was, let's just go in we don't have a story and we're just going to have, because I mean, they pick a level actresses. So obviously when they're pitching to the people like that and their management and their agents, they have to go in with a pretty solid, like you're a filmmaker, then you understand you're represented. You, you just can't go into flippantly into these meetings. Yes. Executives might come up with an idea. Like, let's just make a do in five. Like we're just going to do it, you know, yeah. but they're still going to have to take a pitch that makes sense that's logical that they're gonna have to pay for so they're still gonna have to do the calculation as to how much this will cost and yeah. how much return will we get out of it that's still a, a thing so th- there's many levels that this ghostbuster film went through right yeah. many different yeah. levels yeah. of execs many different people getting convinced and then it, it flopped now guess what that's most films in the year flop yeah. even the ones that we love at sundance we're gonna go to sundance i'm gonna see some awesome independent features and I could hope maybe they'll get distribution by November or December, if at all. Yeah. There will be some that get lost in the mire, the muck in the mire. Mm-hmm. They'll end up on a streaming service and not get many views. And it's going to be a shame because it's a good movie. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Th- this happens all the time. So, you know, the ones that we talk about, I think, in public or, you know, through media or whatnot, it's a very small slice of what's really going on out there. I mean, there's really you know, 1500 or 2000 features made in the U S market alone every year of which only a hundred or 200, you know, independent films get distribution of some sort. It's very true, man. It's very true. And I mean, they're, their formula is based upon facts, right? So like us, what does that say about us as an audience, right? It's super easy to market to us. If it's an existing IP, it's super easy to market to us. If it's something that we can digest quickly, 
you know, like you're um, my age, and I could, I know for a fact that you reluctantly watch some Star Wars shit. Yeah, you reluctantly do it. <laughs> yes, just because it's fucking Star Wars. Of course, don't even tell me otherwise. Of course, of course. Yeah, and, exactly. So of course, half that shit is crap, and not even if it was like objectively, if you were thinking like, should I watch this? You'd probably be like, no. Why did I watch that? It was dumb. I well, the, <laughs> dude, I feel, that was a stupid show. I feel and like I sit through ten episodes. <laughs> Dude, I feel like we're just two, we're two thirsty guys in a desert right now. For God's yeah, of course. <laughs> you know, but, the, but you know, but uh, this is where I want to get to when we're talking about like a controversy of having like an all female cast or having a non traditional cast or changing up characters and stuff like that. Is like they need to do that. They have to try new things. Yeah. There's, there's no way that you can keep pitching the exact same thing. Like even though we're watching Star Wars content, it's all different stories. Yeah. It's it's never about the same character because if they did that, it, it, we wouldn't stick with them as long. Yeah. You can't only have much content about Princess Leia and Luke. No, you right. can only go so far. Yeah. It won't even work in cartoons right now because yeah. kids will be like, "Those are old Star Wars characters. We want the new ones." <laughs> you know? Yeah, they're, yeah. They're they're over Jar Jar, but they got replacements because they have so much other content to choose from. But the name Star Wars still brings you to the freaking table, sometimes reluctantly. Yes, right. Because you you want to have that same sort of reaction. You want to have that that sense of wonderment. And uh, you'll never get Empire Strikes Back back again. I mean, never. if you saw Empire Strikes Back originally in the theater, like there's never been a Star Wars experience that matches up to that so far for me. I personally. agree with you, man. And th- and then there's this sense of it's funny how we ended up on this conversation. It, th- there's this sense of uh, I don't want to say depression, but there's a sense of like depression as a filmmaker because then you're like oh okay look i'm gonna do something wildly original on my own with a hope that i get an agent or manager and then i'm gonna be pushed by those guys to go into rooms and then start to pitch on these pre-existing franchises because everybody wants to finance pre-existing franchises to get and luckily in the horror franchise there's a bit more room but or in the horror genre there's a bit more room rather but um most of the time you're going to be going from doing like an indie thing with the hope of like doing the new Godzilla movie or with the hope of, you know, maybe yes. you're going to end up directing, maybe you I'll know, get a Marvel film, maybe exactly. I'll get to game of Thrones show as a director. Like Ex- yes. Exactly. It, and it, it, it isn't about is original is. content. There's no original content anymore with this there's, stuff. There's, well, there's no original thought in human nature anyways. I mean, we've been around the, you know, this planet for a very long time. <laughs> and we think we're different and better than those that came before us. We're just exactly the same. same. Actually. It's very true. They even found like, um, uh, this is a recent uh, discovery, scientific discovery, but in a lot of cave drawings in multiple different places in the world, there were certain tick marks that were associated with animals. Hmm. And no one really knew what that meant. Did it mean like we brought down three deers or, you know, or is this how many kills you had or is it part of the story? Like, is this, is this part one, two, and three? Like no one understood what those tick marks were. Hmm. Then after this guy that actually wasn't a scientist, but an armchair scientist sitting at home, because you can access all these cave paintings, photographs now in high quality, uh, through a lot of different scientific research that's been done and, and documentation. They actually figured out that it's actually marking the seasons of when those animals will be available. Huh? What part of the year? Huh? So, you know, when to go hunting for this particular animal. Huh. People were smart all the time. <laughs> forever <laughs> from the beginning. They just didn't have the internet. <laughs> so now we just seem smarter because we have a freaking a supercomputer yeah. in our pockets. But it really like 
it's you the know, same human intelligence yeah. is human intelligence we've had these ideas before there's been a female ghostbusters idea around in somebody's head probably thousands of years ago <laughs> yeah right right or something of that sort right like right nothing's right. new so yeah, it's interesting you take your concept like what i would suggest to someone that's going through this dilemma like oh i just gotta make another star wars or otherwise i'm not legit i i say no that's not true star wars is a gateway drug for sci-fi geeks and there's so much more content out there that we love right mm-hmm. there's of course now star trek like you know uh they've taken it to a new level on peacock or was it peacock or cbs i forgot who has it i think it's paramount uh, think it's is CBS. it paramount is it cbs that has it yeah that's paramount yeah isn't paramount it? cbs right paramount yeah, yeah. cbs i think yeah. Yeah, yeah so anyways they have they have um they have their star treks and there's a lot of good content there there's the expanse on amazon prime which is one of the best sci-fi shows ever made mm-hmm. it's a great and, show and and i feel like star wars was an introduction into that kind of show um mm-hmm. so that's really good there's movies out there, you know, that you can enjoy. Um, I certainly watched a lot of space movies growing up. One of the ones that made a huge impact on me was Sunshine by Danny Boyle. Oh, that movie's great. A lot of people don't know about that right. movie. That movie's no. fantastic. It's fantastic. It's better. It's before he did uh, um, the, the one in India. Oh, uh, uh, oh um, Slumdog Millionaire, right? Slumdog Millionaire, yeah, before he did that. Uh, yeah, it's, so it's great. A lot of years before that. It's great. So, like, you know, it opened up a lot of doors uh, and let me see other content. So, sometimes those tent poles or easily accessible IPs, you know, are, are actually birthing other stuff. Um, you know, Raised by Wolves, you should watch uh, mm-hmm. on HBO. You should watch um, Station Eleven, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is on, I can't remember what service that's on. I don't know if that's uh, Am- Amazon Hulu. or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's so yeah. many out there. And, and now we can consume all kinds of stuff. But yeah, for me, certainly Star Wars was the gateway drug into sci-fi. For sure, it gave me the love. That's why two of my favorite James Cameron films to this day are still T2 and Aliens. Both of which are sequels, and both of which are actually better than the originals, which is funny. But <laughs> Ooh, that's, but that's, a, that's a dangerous statement. <laughs> that, that's, when, that's when things changed, right? Was the yeah. James Cameron era, this 80s and 90s, where sequels could be better. They could have bigger budgets. Yeah, they, they could be better IP. That that last. I mean, Terminator IP lasted because of T two, not because yes. of T one. Now for sure, like hundred percent. Yeah, Terminator was a good film, but it was a low budget action thriller, interesting concept. T two took it to the next level, made yep. it a tent pole, and then from there on, it became an IP. Yeah, hundred percent, one hundred percent. Yeah, but I mean, that's James Cameron, right? Like he's he's he, he has he's got that ability inherently has that ability i mean you know what was the movie he did before terminator he was uh a uh special effects supervisor on piranha 2 and he ended up being upgraded to the director on that and then he did terminator <laughs> there you go <laughs> so it's crazy man it's crazy to see um uh, dude this, this conversation has been fun actually <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I was not expecting. I have was not expecting us to get down the hole and talk about festivals and stuff. But it's you've got a lot of experiences with it. I think the audience will really respond to that, man. I go to a lot of festivals during the year. I see a lot of content uh, before a lot of other people do. Um, Yeah, and I value that. I appreciate that. I feel honored that I get to do that. It's it's a big deal for me. Um, I don't let my staff get away with not watching stuff either. So if we go to a festival, they're required to to make sure you can't have conversation with artists in our industry without knowing their work. 
Yeah. So I work with cinematographers. That's my number one contact in the industry is cinematographer first. Yeah. We try to influence what they use when they're making their cinematography. We do it in a nice way. We don't say their lenses are better than anyone else's. We certainly give the history of Zeiss lenses. We talk about why Zeiss, what Zeiss lenses have done in the past and what qualities they give you and how they work with the cameras. But we let the artist decide. We honor them and respect whatever decision they make. They can use Leica. They can use Cook. They can use Sigma. They yeah. can use Canon, whatever they want for their projects, and we'll always respect and honor their work. So if we want to understand somebody and we want to learn, well, what is it that might attract them towards us or what solutions can we have for their next project? You have to watch their work. You have to understand them, and you have to see what they do, and you have to build an appreciation for the art form. If you don't yeah. appreciate this art form, our job is very difficult. It's grueling. It's, it's tiring. Um, when I go to festivals, I don't sleep much. Uh, I'm out <laughs> working 12, 14, 16 hour days. I mean, people don't think it's work, but it's work. It's going yeah, from it one event to the other, one yeah. screening to the other, not eating much all day. I mean, if I go to a trade show like NAB in Vegas, I'm up, I don't know, I'm working 14 hours a day minimum because I show, I show up in the morning, morning, I do the trade show. Then after the trade show is done, we do dinners and we go out with people. Yeah. We hang out with some, you know, some of our colleagues from other companies, but also a lot of end users, rental houses and stuff like that. And my territory is North and South America. So if I go to a trade show, I'm meeting and greeting people from all over the world. Um, and I have to do that all day. <laughs> so, it's a lot. Dude, it's a lot. It's a lot. It's Talk. Inspiring. People don't really. Yeah. People don't realize that when you're just communicating with folks, I've done the trade yeah. show stuff too. And it's just like, you get to the end of it and you're like dead. Exa- you fall into the bed and you fall asleep. Like it's, oh, it's yeah. pretty like, I don't even want to go home. Like I wanted to stay an extra day in the hotel just sleeping, you know, <laughs> like the, that's how you feel. And then when you go to festivals, it's, it's grueling too. Like in Sundance, you're trudging through snow a lot of the times too. So it adds to the, there's a physicality to it, yeah. um, but it adds to it. But I do it happily because it gives me access to things that other people don't get to see. Yeah, uh, It gives me access to having communication with filmmakers themselves, the producers, directors, the cinematographers, the actors, and make personal connections with them uh, and help support them in the future. And support can be anything. Yeah, support could be like I could tell you about our lenses that you want to test out for the movie, or you call me because you're stuck in Prague and the rental house that was supposed to have your lenses doesn't, and you're <laughs> desperately looking for a cook anamorphic zoom, do I know anyone else in Prague? And I'll be like, yeah, of course. We have a whole network worldwide, so I'll just email somebody, and they'll get back to you like within the hour. Like That's, that's what we do. That's- we, we are a support network, and we're going to help you out on the camera lens side. No matter who you are, where you are in the world, we're there for you. We're a service. Dude, that's, it's amazing. Doing I that... Doing that, just you, you learn a lot, right? Because it opens you up to what filmmakers are going through. And yeah. you really get to help out on many different levels. So that's the honor of working in this industry. It could be grueling. It could be tiring. Certainly, you know, it, it's uh, physically can be demanding, believe it or not. Yeah. But, but at the end of the day, like, I think every one of those sacrifices is so worth it. Just to be able to help people out. Well, so you're, you're, you're interacting with a lot of cinematographers, as you said, is there, Mm -hmm. have you noticed a common thread, especially if cinematographers are looking for lenses, right? Is there a a common thread that you're seeing with all of them? Mm, I wouldn't say common thread. I would say that there's like a, a cloud of things of reasons Mm -hmm. uh, and choices that they make. So within that cloud is like, it's partly emotional, partly technical. Oh, interesting. So, what do you mean? What do yeah. you mean? 
Okay. Well, let's say you want, <clears throat> let's come up with a hypothetical. You're making uh, a drama uh, about a murder, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you want it to look? Like, are you going to have a lot of production design? Are you going to hide stuff? Like, do you have a low budget? Do you have a big budget? Because mm-hmm. if you have a big budget and you have great production design, awesome locations, great costumes, well, now you could use anamorphic lenses if you wanted to. Right. Uh, right. If you don't, <laughs> if you're like, oh, I got to hide a bunch of stuff. Well, <laughs> Long close lens. focus distance sucks on anamorphic. And anamorphic really shows you more than you think because it, it's a really wide image. Yeah, so you really see more of the room than you could ever imagine. Probably not a good idea, right? So that's a technical reason, yep. right? Based on budget, like it's going to, our movie costs less. And so we're, we need to hide things. We need longer lenses and we need to be up close, get close to the actors with wide lenses mm-hmm. so that we can show emotion and stuff like that and manipulate. So I'll have to do spherical, right? Boom. That's choice number one. Right. Choice number two, like what camera system are you using? Are you going to do 65 millimeter? Are you doing full frame? Are you doing super 35? What resolution are you using? Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Like I've had more recently people shooting on the Venice 2, but shooting in super 35 mm. on the Venice 2. Why? You get 6K in super 35. They're like, that's all we need. <laughs> <laughs> Believe it or not, the 8K is is quite significantly more data. So it actually costs more right. to shoot an 8K. Right. Storage. Practically and- speaking, you're going to go through more drives yeah. and have more footage, and it's going to cost more to process. And so every point of the chain after recording is going to be more expensive, and your cost could be about 25% more just to go up 2K more in resolution. Yeah, and and it, it also increases your post time because now you're right. you're talking about having to like down-convert Fatter and everything files else. And that has to yep. be processed. It'll take longer to, to yep. create dailies, and yep. it's just going to cost more. Yep. So you make a practical decision. Then there's an emotional side to it. What lenses do I like? Mm-hmm. What lenses have done work for me in the past? What brands do I trust? Mm-hmm. What things have I seen that other people are doing I find interesting and I want that look? Like in this drama, if it's a thriller, do I want opportunities to hide things or make things unclear? Soft focuses, right. focus, um, flares, because it will hide things and make it more mysterious. Yeah, and I want to have those tools. If I don't plan for that, it's hard to get it on the day of because you can only get so many filters to do stuff. Like exactly. you need to really think like what imagery am I creating for my movie? What are the different setups and concepts and lighting that I'm going to have to deal with and then test lenses against that. Exactly. Are they giving me the right type of flare without being overbearing so I can still see the image, but I still get the look mm-hmm. or do I just want it to go crazy? Should I get a specialty set of lenses that just goes nuts because I have a, I have a character that's drugged out. So mm-hmm. let me just get some crazy Lomos and then the whole, most of the frame is soft except for the middle one third. Mm-hmm. So give them tunnel vision. Like, mm-hmm. like you had to plan ahead of time and think. And then a lot of it's emotional. What company has supported you in the past? You know, what does the lens techs recommend at the rental house? Because they know better, like what's, what lenses are good. Right. Um, what does Roger Deakins use? <laughs> you know, <laughs> if I'm a fan of Roger Deakins or what does, you know, Chivo use if I'm a fan of Chivo right, uh, right. or whatnot. Right? right. A lot of it's that, um, some of it could just be being in the right place at the right time. I I've been at ASC events where, DPs are telling me about the new show that they're about to go on. They're excited that they love telling me stuff, right? So I, I love listening. Oh, I'm going to do this in this show. And then I say, oh, did you, what lenses are you trying? Oh, that one. Well, did you also try this? You know, maybe I could be the right point to say, hey, during your lens test, pull out our set of lenses, you know, the rental house you chose, they have it. So 
Yeah. If they don't have it, I'll send it to you overnight. Like I can, I, that's what I do, right? If the rental house, the lenses are out, let's say that there was a set of Supreme Prime Radiance lenses that someone wanted to try out for a show. The show doesn't shoot for two weeks, but the one set that the rental house had is out on another job. Yeah. I overnight it. You know, we don't even think about it. We just send it over to the rental house and we know every single rental house in North and South America personally. Yeah. They, they show it to the DP. If they get the job, then they're going to use their own lenses anyway. So they're happy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So we do that. We provide that service. But I, if I was there at the right place at the right time, I can get that show. Right. That's what happened. Right. right. You know, that's how I got Radiance lenses as prototypes onto uh, season four of Fargo. Oh, no kidding. Dana Gonzalez was, I literally met him at a, and he says this in an interview too. I met him at an ASC 100 year anniversary party. He's like, oh, I'm going to Chicago. Uh, I'll be, you know, testing at Keslo. And of course I know the manager at Keslo in Chicago quite mm-hmm. well. We went to film school together. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I know Keslo and I had just given Keslo, I had just shown them a set of prototype radiance lenses, even before we announced them. And they were very interesting and we wanted some content to be shot with them. So I was like, Dana, what if I just took over some prototype radiance lenses and had them sent out to you in Chicago for your test? Do you want to take a look at them? He's like, yeah, I would love to. And guess what? He ended up choosing them and using them on the show. (laughs) So it gave him the look that he was looking for. That's great. And it wasn't about the flares. It was about the warm skin tones. That's what he really appreciated. Yeah. So you never know. Yeah. Yeah. You never know. Yeah. Because it's wild, man. Like through my years of being a director and a cinematographer before that, it's I think what people don't understand is that there, for each project, there's a set of lenses and it doesn't have to be the specific set of lenses for everything. And if if you're processing it emotionally and if you're thinking of everything you said was, was a hundred percent on point as far as like, what are my budgets and am I hiding things? Am I not hiding things? Do I want a lot of close up stuff? Am I working with diopters? Am I not working with diopters? All that stuff is very logistical, but what I suggest what I do is uh, whenever I'm breaking down a script or if I'm working on a script, I'm always thinking emotionally about it. And it's like, okay, what is the, what is the, the lenses are the eyes of the audience. And so what mm-hmm. eyes do I want the audience see? to see this? With? What are they seeing? What's yeah. the frame? Yeah. Right. What are we trying to say with that frame? You right. Know? Absolutely. Yeah. You, you have to think about that. Um, and lens choice is interesting because let's be very, very honest. Mm-hmm. If, uh, High-end cinematographer had five different sets of lenses for the same movie. They'll still make the same movie with all five sets. Yeah, 100%. (laughs) You know what I mean? 100%. They're going to find a way to make it look like the way they want. 100%. And so all five of those choices are legitimate. Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with any of those choices. Mm -hmm. So you can't say one is better than the other. We just, we we can't do it. It's It's not actually true. Well, and especially with a lot of the new lenses on the marketplace right now, they're 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 very close. Like a lot of the details well, are very close down to five six is going to look very similar. Yeah, they're very similar. It's just they're small, look very small, similar. similar. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Small Absolutely. details. Now, then, then it's like little flavors. Then it's the small things, right? You know, like for example, the big thing now, you know, with more modern lenses, which are slightly larger than than let's say the lenses from the seventies and eighties, um, certainly have more optics in it, more pieces of glass. Mm-hmm. This is across the board for all manufacturers and uh, more correction. That means they have less distortion. They mm-hmm. actually have less fall off from center to edge of the frame. Even mm-hmm. when they're wide open, they perform really well, uh, but they have slight differences between them. Tonal differences in terms of skin tone rendering, 
uh, differences on flares, the mm -hmm. color of the flares, position of the flares, depending on which one of their optics is reflecting light back out mm -hmm. and making it bounce around. Mm -hmm. uh, bokeh, in terms of the shape of the the out of focus uh, shapes in the backgrounds, uh, where the where the highlights are, mm -hmm. those might be different. So then now you're looking for slight differences. You're not looking for overall like whoa this lens is super distorted and this one's straight like that's that's not the at, at the same price point that's not the concern anymore <laughs> you know all the lenses that are like 20 around 20 to thirty thousand each will be pretty decent in all shape always you know like it's definitely going to have really good uh um, distortion control yeah probably have really good uh optics and and correction and certainly will give you better performance from center to edge than a lens from the 80s and 90s but you might not want that. Exactly. Exactly. You might want the look from the eighties and nineties. Exactly. 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 So you got to be able to say to yourself, "Okay, well, that's not what I'm looking for." Okay, well then, how are you going to get to where you're looking for? Are you going to filter? Are you going to use LUTs and lighting? Are you going to use a different lens? Yeah. So that's when now your lens choice becomes a little bit more subtle. Yeah. Yeah. Then you're like, "Oh no, I want the fall off. I like how older, like super speeds, you know, used to fall off in the corners." Um, and I kind of like the color of the flares that the super speeds had. And, and if someone told that to me, I would say, well, you know, you should look at the CP3s, which sounds weird. Hmm. You're like, CP3s, those are inexpensive. But the CP3s have the optical designs from 70, 50, 20 years ago. Uh -huh. They don't have new optical designs. Uh -huh. So they would have the performance of a lot of older lenses. Even, of course, they probably have very good anti-reflective coatings. So your flares will look different than what you expect from older lenses. But certainly they have a round iris. They have a beautiful tone, and they certainly fall off in performance faster than Supremes do. Supremes do also cost four times as much. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and in a blind taste test, CP3 lenses, so the French uh, cinematography organization used to do this semi-annually, but now, you know, because of the pandemic, it's been delayed. But they came out with a new test. They do a blind taste test. <laughs> in the blind taste test, they don't tell you the name of the lens, but they show you the same scene over and over again, right, like any good test would, with movement lighting, skin tone, everything. Mm -hmm. And then you they give you a cheat sheet to rate what you feel and your notes on each of the lenses. But they're all short codes, like number letter codes. Okay. And at the end, they give you a reveal to you what those codes mean. And so you don't know what lens you're rating very like, oh, wow, this looks very cinematic. And then <laughs> you look at the results and CP2s previously and then CP3s now are always in the top five. <laughs> Top five chosen lenses as cinematic. Yeah. Why? They have optical designs that are older. Yeah. Calls back to your youth and what you think of cinema, which is the center two thirds of the frame is fairly clean. Everything else is muddy. It's interesting. That's interesting. Right? Yeah. So it's emotional. And the funny thing is you kind of laughed a little bit when I said CP3, but that's the weird reaction, right? Like price point of the lens also determines what you feel about it. <laughs> if I had priced the CP3s at 15K instead of five, you would have thought highly of that. Of course. You'd have been like, whoa, these are ultra prime beaters. Guess what? They are ultra prime beaters. They hands down scientifically beat ultra primes in many different categories, including <laughs> rendition of colors, black levels, anti-reflective coatings, flare control. There's so much. Ultra primes were designed in 1997 and first introduced in 1998. Obviously, if we introduce a lens in 2017, it's going to be more advanced. Sure, of <laughs> so course. Of even course. if it's less expensive, it's of still course. more advanced. Of course. But the, emotionally, if I told a DP that's been 30 years in the business, you should use CP3s for your new Netflix show, they'd be like, what, are you crazy? 
<laughs> but if they tried it, they may get a different opinion. Yeah. And also, they use crappy anamorphic lenses. They're overpriced. So why not? Yeah, of course. You know what I mean? Like, of course. Of people course. People that, using all kinds of weird stuff that's really expensive, right? Yeah. Right now on yeah. the market? Yeah, 100%. Or they're buying like used lenses for 15 k a pop. Like, that's crazy. <laughs> it sold for $400 or $500 when they were bought originally. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's a... It, that's why it's a mix of everything. It's a mix of emotion, mix of technical knowledge. And then you look at the cinematographers themselves. They're all a mix. Mm -hmm. Some of them are very artistic. Mm -hmm. Some of them never touch the camera or the settings. They just ask for stuff and their ACs do it. Some of them love the camera and want to touch it and manipulate it and want all the settings and color science has to be their way and everything has to be the way they dictate mm -hmm. because they want to be in control of that. Some cinematographers just sit at the monitor and they're more concerned with capturing the performance correctly. Yeah, right. Right. And they're okay with mix of zooms and primes. And they don't really care that the color correction is going to be problematic. Like, I don't really care. I'm just going to adjust my monitors and my LUTs to make it look okay for me to monitor. But that's your job to make it, make it all match. I'm going to use Ingenue zooms, uh, Cook primes, and Leica primes. So what? Mm -hmm. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. So you can't really gauge it based on your assumptions about what people want. You really have to have conversations with a lot of people. So my number one job is actually talking to DPs. That's what I do most more than anything is try to talk to as many DPs as possible. Yeah, right. Right. And I'm not necessarily trying to sell them anything or make them use our lenses or anything like that. I just want to have those conversations and learn from them and then be able to help them out or give them information or education or anything like that. Yeah. It's, so it's fascinating it really just comes down to all these different elements when you're choosing a lens and you're 100% right that it's all about the individual and it's all about where the cinematographer is coming from and what their comfortabilities are. And I think it's really great that uh, it seems to be your goal and the goal of Zeiss in general to be there with them and to be supportive of them because that, that's that's huge. Oftentimes as a filmmaker, you feel sort of lost in this sea of consumerism. Yes, yeah. You know what Absolutely. I mean? Absolutely. Especially cinematographers, they're not like when the cinematographer goes to a typical film festival, no one's celebrating them. <laughs> Let's be true. Let's be honest. <laughs> it's you know, very like, true. There's not workshops about, you know, cinematography usually. In fact, we started the first ever cinematography award at South by Southwest. There was none before. Oh wow. Uh, same with a couple of other festivals that we're a part of as well. Like there was no cinematography award. So, you know, it, it's all about um, uh, opening up that door and saying, Hey, cinematography is important to festivals and to uh, festival goers because it's photography it's your principle of photography is one of the most important aspects of, of movie making 100 it needs to be celebrated and people need to train about it and talk about it so for more than 10 years um, i've been at south by southwest talking about cinematography and doing workshops and training people and interviewing cinematographers and talking about their lessons and how they did stuff to encourage and motivate new people uh, you know, younger filmmakers. Um, we have the lounge and the party at Sundance. So not only can we just show the equipment and stuff, but also make friends and party with them and yeah. show them a good time and say, hey, look, some cinematography needs to be celebrated. Now, luckily at Sundance, they also have a, a real sponsor because, you know, by the way, we're not a sponsor. So we're not doing any Sundance activities. By the way, we're doing film festival activities that happen to be in Park City, Utah. But uh, officially, Canon is there and they do work with the ASC. They have a series of interviews as well. Uh, my buddy Jay Holman will be interviewing people 
um, their filmmakers at the festival and they're partnered up with Canon. So they're going to have a party at the the Canon lounge and stuff like that over the weekend on Sunday. Oh, cool. So there is something there, you know, there is some presence for cinematography that's official part of Sundance, which is cool. And South by it's Zeiss and Panavision are officially part of South by Southwest. So we're certainly enacting some influence now. Um, before the only film festival that really the manufacturers for lenses and cameras used to religiously attend would be camera image film festival in Poland, uh, because it's only about cinematography, right? Like the whole festival is right, right. cinematography. Right. Uh, so that's very unique, but the other festivals, no, there was no support system for someone that's coming up through cinematography. They would be lucky to get tickets to their own films. If the producers and directors like gave a ticket up for them, you know, <laughs> it's that's true. what you'll find in Sundance actually that a lot of people, a lot of cinematographers that are there are hoping that they're going to get that one or two tickets that's been promised to them for yeah. their own screening. Yeah, no, it's Quite very honestly, true. Yeah. That's, that's really what's happening. Uh, even the big time, even the film festival or, or you know, the cinematographers that have been to five or 10 of these uh, still go through the same thing every time because they're not the ones that are uh, front and center. In, in a lot of this uh, activities that film festivals do. So being able to go to them and then have an influence, work with other partners and manufacturers to have an influence in a positive way is a good thing, I think, for the industry, uh, for us to do. I agree. That's why we do it. I agree, man. And, and cinematography is one of my passions. And that is one of the reasons why we have cinematographers on the show from varying levels of experience, uh, you know, from the high end down to the low, because it, this 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 world filmmaking is a visual medium it just is and so like to have an appreciation and to have an understanding of the visual language and to celebrate that visual language um i think is really important uh in this business and i think that uh, the person that's at the front line of that and yes mm -hmm. there's visual directors out there there are people that uh, are completely engrossed with lens choices and blocking and everything else. But there's a lot of directors out there that aren't. There's a lot of directors that come from writing, a lot of directors that come from acting, and they're completely reliant upon cinematographers to tell that story visually. Um, mm -hmm. It's an incredibly important position. Uh, and I appreciate the fact that you have as much of a love for it as we do here at the show. So. <laughs> Thank you. I, I don't think I could be in my position without that. I mean, I came to Hollywood to be a filmmaker and that's what I really want to be doing. Uh, I get to touch upon it. I get to, of course, create content for Zeiss and for my friends. I get to help them out. But really, I need to get back into filmmaking myself. But having a job like this, it really gets me close to the action. Yeah. And it really makes me feel like I'm participating in Hollywood. Uh, and everything that's being created. And of course, because my territory is North and South America, I, I get to repeat that experience in many different countries. Yeah, that's be a cool. part of their system. That's very I have cool. really tight friendships now and contacts. And I speak in Brazil during a, a film festival conference over there. Nice. Uh, Argentina. Um, you know, we'll be going to Costa Rica, Panama, Chile this year, Uruguay. Um, you know, we went to Colombia already. Uh, I was just in Puerto Rico. So all over Latin America, for sure, uh, Mexico and South southbound from there, we're, we're spreading over there. And then we go to Canada. So we're in Vancouver, Toronto, uh, Montreal, and those industries are a little bit different. And then all over the U.S., if it's in Chicago or in New Mexico or in Atlanta, mm -hmm. all those sub-industries, those pieces of Hollywood that are making use of tax credits to be in those states, um, they're all a little different, right? Like mm -hmm. the New Orleans 
production teams and their methodology is a bit different than Atlanta, which is a bit different than Chicago. It's true. Um, so it's just so cool to go learn, understand the trials and tribulation, understand the, the kind of uh, challenges that people have, and then give a lot of respect to the cinematographers and all the crew members. At the end of the day, these are people, especially when they're working on stage, which is usually the first half of the week, um, they're working in dusty warehouses for 12, 14 hours a day. Yes, yeah, it's very true. Right? It is. I don't know how many if basements. If we don't respect that, then yeah. you just forget it. You, you can't, <laughs> if you can't empathize with that, then you're not going to, you're not going to be able to, to, to work with anybody because you've got to understand that. Yeah. How much asbestos and, and dust that has been dust. in my lungs. <laughs> you know, I go to Latin America and they have all these beautiful new stages because, you know, Netflix and, Streaming services have been really taking a bite out of traditional broadcast media. So they're building up studios where the TV stations are kind of hurting you know, mm. a little bit. Mm. Um, or at least the TV stations are being challenged. They're not hurting, but they're just being challenged. So you're seeing brand new studios. Like these third-party companies are coming out with beautiful studios in Brazil, for example, uh, right in the heart of Sao Paulo that rival anything we see over here. And they're new and they're clean and they're not dusty. I'm like, whoa. What is cool. going on? Yeah, that's super cool, man. <laughs> what is going on? This, is, this won't last so long. Uh, <laughs> but it, it's it's fun to see that. It's it's definitely fun to see that. You know, you come back to Warner Brothers and everything's like a wooden beams, you know, with like 50 <laughs> nails put in every beam. Yeah, right. Over your, seal, over your head and, and, you know, dust falling on you all day. Like, it's crazy. <laughs> Uh, it's such a fun, it's such a fun, dirty business. I love it's it so much. Business. It's a dirty when people business. People talk about it being dirty business. Nothing to do with sex. It's just the warehouse. <laughs> it's just the asthma that you're going to yeah, have. Exactly. And you see some of the locations people work in. You don't want to live in those houses. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. Um, well, look, man, I should probably wrap this up. This has been a great conversation. I'm so happy to have you on the show, man. And 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 honestly, I'm happy that I'm very surprised that we went down the rabbit hole of film festivals. And I think um, it's, it's a wonderful conversation that we were able to capture on this one, dude. Thank you. Thanks. I, I feel honored to be on. I really yeah. appreciate you asking me. Thanks, um, man. I love talking about this stuff. And if anyone gets something out of it, I think it's wonderful. Uh, wow. Any nugget of information. And, you know, feel free to publish my email address if anyone wants to reach out. There it is. What did I tell you? Wild. Like, I, I was not expecting the conversation to go that way. And I'm happy I did. And it's it's great when I have someone on the show that uh, makes me think twice about what I've assumed. Or no, no, no. Let me rephrase that. Of systems that I put in place for myself, right? I've always, at this point, I've been sort of a naysayer about film festivals. Because I'm like, ah, what's the purpose of them? It has to do with it. But I've had a couple of guests on the show this year that have had successes with film festivals again. So I'm like, mm, all right, maybe it is a thing. And with this new piece that I'm doing, I'm, my goal is to submit it to some film festivals and see what happens. I mean, I'm not looking for representation. I'm already, I already got that. I'm looking for uh, new audience reactions, but I think I'm what I'm looking for from a festival circuit right now is relationships. Maybe I'll meet some actors that I think are really great. Maybe I'll meet some other directors that are really fun. Um, and, and just audiences, I think. So I'm happy I had this conversation today with Snail because he had me thinking again about, you know, 
And that's the that's the thing in this business, right? Anytime we try to like place a flag and go, this is how this works. Everything shifts underneath you. So it's so fucking hard to find footing sometimes. Um, and uh, so it's nice to get knocked off my pedestal every now and then. So thanks for listening to the show today. What'd you think? It's a good episode, right? And I've seen the numbers, man. You guys are listening. You guys are suggesting your friends to listen to the show. Do you have a filmmaker friend? Do you have a nephew or niece that is thinking about going to film school? You should tell them to listen to the show. Send them the info. I will take care of them. They can come here. They'll learn some shit. Maybe save you some money. You know? (laughs) That's it, man. Today's episode in the can. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, you will catch me here next Tuesday. Tuesday.